This is the MS Show, the podcast for people with multiple sclerosis and their families who want information and inspiration. I'm Bron Webster. I've been living with MS for over 20 years. I'll be sharing with you tips, stories and ways to keep going with MS. I'm really pleased today to welcome to the podcast Trishna Baradia. Trishna is a health advocate and a patient engagement champion for MS. And it's a real privilege to have you here today, Trishna. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. Right. What are we going to talk about today? So Trishna, a nice place to start is just a little bit of your story. But before you go into it, I did see online that you are approaching your 12th year of being diagnosed. And that yes. is literally later this month. It is, say, so the middle of, um, middle of this month. And oh, to be honest, I don't even know where those 12 years have gone. Um, so I was diagnosed back in May 2008. I was age 28 at the time. And I'd had several years of symptoms in the run-up to that diagnosis. So my initial, what we now know was probably my first relapse. I'd lost the strength in both my hands. But as is very common with many people who are eventually diagnosed with MS, it was put down to something completely different. And I was diagnosed with repetitive strain injury. And I was sent for physio in time, things got better, forgot about it. But then about three years later, I completely lost the feeling down one side of my body. And that's really what put me on the path to what eventually led to my MS diagnosis, because I was then referred to a neurologist. I was sent for MRI scans. I had a lumbar puncture. And in the meantime, I also started to experience other symptoms, so particularly sensory issues. So I had Lamitz sign, which is where you flex, when you flex your neck, I was getting electric shock sensations down one side. I was also getting burning and pins and needles and tingling sensations. And so after two MRIs, um, a whole host of blood tests to rule out other things and my lumbar puncture, I was eventually, I was given the diagnosis of relapsing MS in May 2008. And that's the date that I mark now as my MS anniversary. So you've given it a bit of a positive twist there. Yes, I do. Well, the thing is, is that I'm, I'm sure we'll end up talking about much of this later on. There is so, so many positive things that have come out of my diagnosis. I've had some wonderful opportunities. I've met some amazing people. I've learned, um, I've, I've really learned what I want out of life. I often say to people that being diagnosed with MS has actually turned me into the person that I'd always wanted to be. That was really the catalyst that led me on a certain path and has made me into the person I am now. And it's put me where I am now as well. And that's the reason why I can't see it as something negative in my life. So many wonderful things and so many brilliant things have come out of it as a result that I think, well, why not mark it? Because it was the day that changed my life. 
at the time when I was diagnosed, I didn't know that it would be a positive change in my life. Um, but it, it has been. And, you know, it's very much the positives have outweighed the negatives. And I think a lot of that has come out of the advocacy work that I've ended up going into, because I think there is something which is always very, very positive whereby you're taking what is a very negative situation for you which is being diagnosed with a chronic long-term in currently incurable degenerative condition and using it to help other people and i think that's an incredibly positive and a very affirmative thing to do uh which is yeah which is why i think well it is it's something positive that's come out of that diagnosis so on our market um, I often end up, so I remember when I was, um, when I left the hospital after receiving the news, my mum and dad were with me and we stopped at a petrol station and dad said, are you okay, Trish, is there anything that you need? And I said to him, I said, you know what, can you just buy me an ice cream? I think I deserve it. So every year now on my MS anniversary, I have an ice cream. <laughs> Um, so yeah, people you know celebrate their birthdays with birthday cake. I celebrate my MS anniversary with ice cream. <laughs> That's all good. That sounds good to me, <laughs> definitely. And so you've said that you're a patient advocate. What is what is a patient advocate? What is involved in that, and how did you end up getting into it? So a patient advocate, being an advocate is actually what you make it. You know, people ask me, how do I become a patient advocate? Well, it's actually ad advocacy is about helping others. Now, you can do that in any way that suits you. You can do as much or as little as you want. For me, it's about putting the patient voice into the healthcare journey louder more you know stronger more effectively um, and throughout the healthcare journey so from diagnosis to through to drugs development through to um, ongoing care and support through to um, campaigning for better you know better rights for example access to work etc etc it can cover a whole spectrum of things for me, I've ended up very much concentrating, like I said, in the healthcare journey. That's something that's really interested me, essentially because when I was diagnosed, my then healthcare team, so my then neurologist, essentially handed me this diagnosis and then sent me away with no information, no signposting, no guidance as to where I should be going for, you know, support information, etc., you know, never once was the MS Society mentioned, never once was it mentioned, you know, where I could, for example, look into, you know, clinical trials, for example. Um, it, none of that was offered to me. And I took the attitude, well, if that's happening to me, it must be happening to other people. And it shouldn't be like that. Um, so that's the reason why I've been very much interested in improving that healthcare journey. Other people might be, get involved in advocacy through fundraising 
or through one-to-one support or they might volunteer as I don't know as a treasurer for their the local group of the MS society it's very much it's what you want to make it um one thing that I do say about advocacy and about um particularly the volunteering side of things is that you need to be able to enjoy it because if you're giving up your time in order to do something then you should be enjoying what you're doing um you know i all of my advocacy work is done in my i say in, in inverted commas spare time i have a full-time job i work as a translator for a business intelligence company so if i'm going to be spending my evenings and weekends and you know my holidays etc doing advocacy work then of course i should be enjoying it um, and i think that's really important to remember it's it's about you know what you want to make it and as i said you can do as little or as much as you want you can do lots of different things it's about finding what works for you yeah where your passion is as well a passion and yeah. enjoyment and like you say spare time is a precious commodity so absolutely it is it is and especially i mean Fatigue for me is a real issue. It's one of my main symptoms of MS. So if I have, if I have restricted and um, energy levels, I want to make sure that where I am expending energy, I'm expending it in a productive and positive way, but also in a way that I enjoy. Because why would you expend energy on something that you don't enjoy when you've already got limited reserves? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what sort of things are you actually doing on a day-to-day basis then as part of the advocacy? So I do a huge variety of different things from, I, you know, going to speak at conferences and events, internal meetings, um, at healthcare companies to writing. I write about my experiences. I write about patient engagement. I review content, so patient, particularly patient-facing materials to make sure that they are relevant, that they're in the correct format, that they're understandable as well, because often patient-facing materials are written by people who aren't necessarily part of that patient community. So you need to make sure, for example, that the tone is right, that it's not patronising, it's using words that people are going to to understand. I also advise and um, people consult me on things like disease awareness campaigns um, about putting together patient engagement strategies about um, things like if they want to run a focus group for instance, how do they engage with the patient community? How can they make sure that the focus group that they're putting on is patient friendly? So things like accessibility, what time it should be, should they be providing food and drink, things like that. So it's um, it's very much the whole spectrum of things. Another thing that um, I do, which I really, again, I really enjoy is I'm, I often give interviews in the media. So if there is a new, I don't know, a new clinical trial, for instance, that's appeared in the media and it's to do with MS, then often, particularly local BBC 
media and radio stations will contact me and say, have you got a comment on this? Uh, I've done quite a lot of interviews with the BBC Asian Network about living with chronic illness, about what is MS, about disability and the, the stigma and the stereotypes that sometimes happen within the Asian community. And as well as that, I also work with, uh, with the NHS, with healthcare professionals on things like shared decision making, how to ensure that your clinic appointment is patient friendly. So it's a whole range of different things. Um, I mm. absolutely, I, I just enjoy it. I get to work with lots of different organisations from, like I said, from industry and healthcare companies to lots of different charities to, you know, neurologists, other people who are living with chronic illness and particularly, you know, obviously particularly MS. And so I get that, I get that opportunity to interact with lots of different, they're called stakeholders in, in mm. the healthcare journey. So thinking, you said there about the Asian MS community, and that is something that I'm really not aware of how ms affects other cultures is that something that you kind of felt that it needed a greater voice and that you wanted to sort of speak up more for that community definitely so within the asian community there is still a lot of stigma and prejudice attached to chronic illness serious illness disability um, particularly if you're a woman because as women within the Asian community we're expected to be everything for everyone so we're expected to be expected to be a good wife daughter sister mother etc etc and there's a lot of misunderstanding there's a lot of um, there's a huge lack of knowledge around what MS is because traditionally MS has been seen as a western disease it's been seen as a western illness and you know i know people who were asians who were diagnosed eventually diagnosed with ms and were even told by neurologists or oh, it can't be ms because asians don't get ms whereas actually within the within um the second and third generations of you know, Asians who have been born and brought up in the UK or in the US, etc, etc. Um, we have just the same, you know, risk factors as everyone else. And actually, more and more people within the Asian community are being diagnosed with MS. So I thought it was incredibly important that we get that out there. Because, you know, just one example, I know somebody who has MS, she's around the same age as I am, she's Asian, and they've hidden it from the community and from the extended family because of the reactions and the experiences they've had when they had initially disclosed it to people. And the reactions were so awful, you know, people say things like, oh, it's karma, you've done something bad in a former life. Um, you know, how are you going to have children? How are you going to bring up children? And, you know, you're useless to me now, so I'm going to divorce you. And that's, that's still there. And those, you know, 
stereotypes of if you diagnose with a chronic illness, then you become useless to society. Um, I want to be able to smash those stereotypes, say, hey, hang on a second. No, that's that's not the case. And I think the only way to do that is a from within the community itself, because you need to have an understanding as to why those attitudes are there. But also it needs to be done in a way that that it doesn't judge the reasons why those attitudes are there. And I think if you're doing it from outside the community, that becomes much more difficult. Having been born and you know brought up within that community, I can understand why some of those attitudes exist. And having that understanding then helps you to change those attitudes. So yeah, it's something which I'm, I'm very passionate about. It's one of the reasons why Asian MS was set up um, Asian MS is one of the national support groups that works under the umbrella of the UK's MS Society. Um, and it was set up many, many years ago by basically somebody who met someone else who was an Asian who had an MS and was basically, oh, wow, I never knew any other Asians had MS. So they set up this support group. And it's very much, it's about having a safe space to be able to engage in these discussions, raise awareness within the Asian community in a culturally sensitive way. And I think that's really important that there are cultural sensitivities that have to be taken into account. Um, because if you don't, then there's a great danger of just putting your foot in it. Foot in it and that, you know, that's not going to get the message through people just won't listen yeah uh, and that's a really important message I think for everybody listening and particularly if anybody is from that community to know that that support is out there and how would somebody find that support would they look online yes yeah, so um if you go onto the MS Society's website um, there is a section on the website which is dedicated to Asian MS and on there you will find past editions of the newsletter, you'll find our social media details. So we're also on Twitter and we're on Facebook as well. And um, so, yeah, it's about, like I said, it's about having the opportunity to engage with people from the same cultural background and people who have an understanding of what those sensitivities might be. Yeah, absolutely. Because to get a diagnosis is isolating enough. Exactly. But to then not be able to see people or know where to find people to talk to, um, that is just a further, a further issue. So definitely that's important. And I think, do you feel personally, Trishna, because of those um, community pressures, do you feel that you've got even more to prove? I do. Because you are really, really really busy aren't you um, I, yeah, I <laughs> um yeah no i do feel like yeah i do have something to prove i think and it's one of the reasons why i was so grateful for the opportunity to do strictly come dancing because not only was i representing the ms community i was representing asians who have disabilities, Asians who are living with long-term conditions. And tele television is obviously such a visual, um, such a visual media 
that people could see I was essentially a brown face with MS, with, you know, hidden disability, with a long-term condition, but I was doing all these things. And I think that was very powerful. I had many people contact me after the show to say that they sat down with their families and watched, watched the show and it helped them to engage with their own families and start conversations because I had been so open about my own journey, they felt that it was then possible to open up about their own because they felt like I actually, I'm not, a, I'm not alone. And I think that's, that's really important. And like I said, mm. it was about, it was about showing the world what, what can be possible. And I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, I, I was very aware that I didn't want people to go away and think that everybody with MS would have been able to dance a jive the same way that I did. But it wasn't about actually what I did. It was about the attitude that I was conveying. And I think that that that's what the difference is. It's about saying, well, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to lead my life. And there are plenty of things which I'm, which are beyond me. You know, I, I, for me running a marathon just that's not within my physical capabilities anymore there are plenty of people with ms it is within their physical capabilities it's not within mine however i don't i don't think to myself oh you know what i can't run a marathon and that means i can't do any exercise i think about what are the things i can do and is that i think that's the attitude that i really wanted to put across in the show the fact that if you have disability, if you have chronic illness, don't write us off. It's really important to find what you can do. Yeah. And then to get on with that. And I know you've ended up um, going from a really serious hockey player and you've transitioned into Zumba now. Yeah. And I think all of this will have stood you in fantastically good stead when you went on to Strictly. Um, so what what was your sort of hockey background so my hockey background i was literally i was more or less born with a stick in my hand <laughs> um, so my family are a hockey family uh, my dad still plays he's uh, over 70 he plays at club league level he also plays internationally for wales as well um at the age of you know 70 um both my sisters play uh my cousins uncles it's it's in the blood and i had played hockey basically all, all my life and to quite a high level as well i'd played county level i'd played for the first 11 at my university and i played a very good competitive league level as well and i continued to play even after my diagnosis I was slowly having to make adjustments. So first I started, what I say, moving backwards down the pitch. So I had always been a, in the attacking front line. I was a right winger or a centre forward, um, which involves a lot of running. And you have to do a lot of sprinting. You have to be fast and agile on your feet, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I was finding that fatigue was becoming an issue. My reactions were becoming much slower and I started to move further down the pitch. Um, and in, when I eventually ended up having to give up hockey, I was actually um, in the position which is known as a sweeper. So it's basically the last person before you get to the goalkeeper. Um, and it was just, it was something which I felt that I needed to do in order to continue to play just in the same way that in order to continue to play, I had to make adjustments to the amount that I was playing. So at the point of being diagnosed, I was often playing two matches in the weekend and I was training twice a week during the week. And again, it got to a point where even just playing one match was wiping me out for two to three days. And as much as it, it was heartbreaking, it was like losing a part of me to stop playing. I knew that it was the right thing to do because like I said, I, it was wiping me out. It was taking me two to three days to recover from a match. And when you work full time, I just, that, I couldn't do that. I was also getting injured more often. And part of me started to doubt myself thinking, am I getting injured more often? Because I'm getting slower. I'm getting more tired on the pitch, much faster. My muscle fatigue was getting really bad. And essentially, I wasn't able to get out of the way of flying balls and flying sticks. And I had a couple of very bad injuries, ended up in A&E. And that really, it not my confidence, but I also became scared to a certain extent. And when you play hockey, there is, a, there is an element of you have to be a bit fearless, really. Um, and so I thought, actually, no, this is this is the right time to stop. I was still playing at a good level and I didn't want to get to the point where either I got really, really badly injured or I wasn't, I was, I started resenting the fact that I wasn't able to play at the level that I knew that I could play at. I didn't want to get to that point. Um, and so I started to find alternatives and there was a point at which I was doing both Zumba and hockey in parallel because I thought I need to try and find something. Because you're crazy. Because you're active. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so for my sport has always been part of my life. I've always been one of those people that I literally, I tried everything. You know, I used to play a lot of netball, you know, volleyball, tennis, squash, like you name it, I would, I would do it. Um, and when I started to adjust the level of hockey training that I was doing, I thought, okay, if I'm not going to do hockey training during the week, let me find something else that I can do that maybe I don't have to push myself as hard because when you're playing a team sport, you have to keep up with the rest of your team. With Zumba, the only person you're 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 essentially competing if that's the right word again, or letting down or letting down yeah it's, it's yourself and so I knew that actually I could go to Zumba I didn't have to keep up with anybody I didn't have to compare myself to anybody I could go when I was having a bad day and I could do what I was able to do without feeling like I was letting anyone down um, and so it, 
there was a point when I was doing both in parallel, but then when I eventually gave up my hockey, I then started to do a lot more Zumba. Um, so, I mean, at the moment we're in a lockdown um, period, so things have slightly changed. Um, but outside of this whole lockdown situation, I will usually do up to four classes a week, um, depending on what other things I've got going on and things like that. And I've got to just stop you there and just let the yeah. listeners know that I, you do Zumba and your younger sister teaches Zumba, yes, doesn't she? she? Does. Yeah. So she's been doing that online and I joined in one um, last week and hoping I'm going to join in more. But I can say, watching, watching Trishna using her nimble footwork in a Zumba <laughs> class, and I thought, That's, that must have taken years. Years and years. It, it does take practice. I mean, I, I love dancing and I always have done. And so I think... For me, it was very much about, well, I get to spend an hour doing something that I love and going completely crazy to some great music, which again, I love, you know, I grew up listening to Latin American and Spanish music. Um, my job as a translator, I actually translate from Spanish into English. Um, so yeah, it's just something that I love. But I think even within, so we, in, in that online class, there was obviously my sister, my younger sister was leading the class. There was myself and then my mom. Even within just that threesome, my younger sister lives with inflammatory bowel disease. She has ulcerative colitis. I have multiple sclerosis and I also live with several other chronic conditions, including irritable bowel syndrome and chronic urticaria and angioedema. My mom is over 70 she has hypertension and a chronic lung condition but you know what we were all joining in we were all doing the same thing we were all doing what we were able to do and I think that's a really unique thing about dance is that it can be truly inclusive and in um in Anisha that's my sister in Anisha's classes so it's a fully inclusive environment she is a qualified inclusive dance instructor she has a uh, a qualification from Paradance UK. Um, and in her classes, we have people with cerebral palsy, people who are, who are living with amputations, people who are living with spinal cord injuries, um, people who have visual impairments. We've got a whole range of different abilities, but we all come together. We all love dance and everyone comes and you do what you're able to do without any fear of judgment and without any fear of, like I said, that you might be letting somebody down because, you know, if you can't keep up on a hockey pitch, then you are letting the team down essentially. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why I think dance is a really great form of exercise for anybody who's living with a long-term condition um, and or a disability because you're able to go at your own pace. There's no right or wrong, um, apart from if you do Strictly Come Dancing, in which case, if you get the steps, then you are wrong. <laughs> Somebody's going to sit and actually judge you. Exactly. Um, judge your but having said that, something that, so my, my, um, my professional dance partner on Strictly was Aliash Skonianes, and something that he said to me because I have I always had this very bad habit of constantly saying sorry whenever I did something that I felt was 
I got the steps wrong. And he would always say to me, he said, when you're dancing in a partner dance, he said, if you think you've gone wrong, he said, that's not the case. It's always the guy who's gone wrong because the guy is meant to lead you. So he said, you're never going wrong. And so I was like, okay, I'll take that. (laughs) I'm not sure it quite counted the couple of times when I landed flat on my face because I managed to trip over my own feet. I'm pretty sure I couldn't blame him for that. But <laughs> Less painful than a hockey injury, I guess. Yes, very, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of my hockey injuries have just, yeah, they've been... Some of my hockey injuries, even when I'd been taken to A&E, so there was one injury I had, and we actually had to call the ambulance to take me to A&E, and even the paramedics looked at my injury, and they said... We're not quite sure what to do with that. That actually looks really bad. And you think when the paramedics say that, then you know that it's not good. <laughs> no. So you are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you are that crazy girl. Um, so I was looking through uh, a couple of your uh, vlogs that you've done um, before we were talking. And I know you said that up until sort of, uh, eight years after your diagnosis you'd always seen your MS as being very separate to yourself but that later down the line it's become an intrinsic part of you and you've taken taken it into being part of you of you yeah do you feel do you go by the mantra of MS defines you no, that's a, a lot of people say it doesn't define me um, and are very adamant about that. And then I know that I think, well, it does, it does to some extent define me. Um, and I just wondered where, where you are on that one, Trishna. So I wouldn't say that it defines me. I would say it's defined the path that my, la- that my life has taken since diagnosis. Um, I wouldn't be who I am, I wouldn't be where I am, and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for the fact that I've been diagnosed with MS. And that's, that's what it's defined. It's had an influence on the character that I've become, it's had an influence on my personality, but that's also because it's defined the path that I've gone down. So believe it or not, and many people just laugh out loud when I tell them this, naturally, I'm an, I'm an introvert. I'm an introverted personality. I was painfully shy as a kid, all the way up until, I mean, up until university, and then I started to sort of come out of my shell a bit. But when I compare even people who knew me at university, when they see me now, they say, wow, Trishna, you like completely different in terms of your confidence, your how outgoing you are and things like that. And that so MS has had an impact in that way. But it's because the path that I've gone down. So doing advocacy, I felt that one of the best ways to get my message across was to speak to people. Whereas when I was at school, if I saw somebody that I knew, if I was walking in town and I saw somebody that I knew across the, um, walking towards me kind of thing, I'd cross over the road because I'd be too scared to talk to them. Whereas now, I, you know, I took that, 
I realized very quickly, well, if I want to get my message across, I'm going to have to talk to people and mm. do very, uh, it, I naturally felt with very uncomfortable situations because I don't know these people. You go and speak at a conference, you're speaking in front, I mean, my biggest live audience to date has been about 700 people. And I, it's been me on a stage talking to over 700 people. And then you're expected afterwards to be able to go and speak with those people. And, you know, the buzzword in the, in the business world, and even actually in our social lives nowadays is networking. You know, I'm not a natural networker <laughs> at all, um, but it's something that I've had to learn to do. So that's then had an impact on my social life because, because I've had to learn how to network. I also find it much easier now to talk to, you know, if we go out as a group of friends and there are people in that group who I don't know, I'm no longer scared to go up to them and say, hi, I'm Trishna, you know, this is where I'm from, you know, how do you know so-and-so, for example. I would never have done that in the past. So it is, I, I wouldn't say that MS has, it, it, I wouldn't say it defines me, I would say that it's defined the path that I've gone down, which has then had an influence on who I've become. Mm. And have, was there a particular trigger point where you, was there something that you did or didn't do that made that whole switch into becoming more vocal or was it just a case of repetition and keep doing it and talking it, to people? It was, it was very organic. You know, I, I often receive messages from people and they'll say, how do I get to a level of patient advocacy that you've got to? I thought, you know, I'd like to be able to say, well, there was a plan and I followed a plan and I had a strategy. I, no, I didn't. Like, it, it was all organic. One thing led to another. I got involved with one thing that led to something else. I met somebody at, you know, I don't know, maybe I spoke at a local MS um, society group event. And then in that, somebody saw me speak and they said, oh, would you come and speak at our event? At conferences, what will often happen is I'll, you know, I'll speak at a conference. And then somebody will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, oh, we've got this project that we're doing. And actually what you spoke about really resonated and we'd like you to be involved in that project. It's all been very much word of mouth and all very organic. And, you know, I say to people, well, for me, the things that have allowed it to grow has been talking to people. It's been, you know, getting out there on social media um, and things like that, but there was no plan, you know, it just, it happened. And if somebody says, can you pinpoint any sort of flash points, there are points at which I saw a definite sort of change in path. So one was when I changed neurologist and the neurologist who I changed to is very much, he's a key opinion leader. He's very much out there in the academic and um, the research world. He is very proactive, very forward thinking. And he helped me to become a, an, what's known as an expert patient. He helped me to develop those tools and to also develop the knowledge to be able to sit in a room with other healthcare professionals, with people from, for example, the pharmaceutical industry, people from 
the regulatory side of things and be able to have a conversation on the same level as them rather than feeling like you were the one in the room who didn't really understand what thinking about so that was one key sort of what I call flashpoint another flashpoint was when I was um I was very humble um to have received the um the MS Society's Volunteer of the Year award um this would have been back in gosh I actually even remember the year now, uh, possibly 2013. It was the same year that the MS Society um, celebrated their 60th anniversary. Um, and again, from there, when I won that award, it was, a fa it was the first of what would, I, I get a bit embarrassed when I talk about my awards because I don't do it for the awards. Um, but it was one of what would then become a number of awards for my advocacy work. But because of that, that first one, I was then interviewed, for example, in the local press. I was asked to do media interviews. And again, people started, people from outside the MS community started to see what I was doing and understand the reasons why I was doing it. So again, it got me involved in, in various things. And then I would say the next flashpoint was, was doing Strictly Come Dancing. Um, and I'll be forever grateful to my, my, it was my younger sister who nominated me for that. Um, because again, it was about reaching an entirely different audience. It was, it was amazing the fact that we were talking about MS on the most well-loved, most popular primetime entertainment show on UK television. And that was very much not only a, a launch pad to get MS into the public eye in a way that we'd never seen before, but it also enabled me to learn a lot of things about myself. I, you know, in terms of confidence, it, gave, it was a huge confidence booster because, you know, if somebody had said to me 10 years ago, I'd be dancing on television in front of millions and millions of people, I would never have you know, believe them. It was a good, um, it was a good lesson in learning about what was achievable. You know, when they first gave me the jive and they said, this is the dance that you're going to be doing, my heart sank because there was, so there were three dances that I really didn't want to do. The jive, the Charleston and the, the quick step. I was going to say all the fast feet. All the fast dances. feet ones. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so they gave me the jive and I was just like, oh. Was that your first dance? It was my, so um, with People Strictly, we were, it was a one-off. Um, so it was a four-part series, but it was, what they did was the first three episodes was talking about our backstory and our journey on Strictly, our training, how we were finding it and things like that. Um, and they sort of did interviews with our friends and family and all that kind of um, stuff. And then the... The actual dance show we all did one dance um, and then it went to a public vote all of the voting um, it was raising money for comic relief and then they announced I say the winner but to be perfectly honest the six of us who were chosen we all felt like we'd already won the lottery anyway because we had the chance to do Strictly um, that was announced on the live on the night of comic relief which that year was broadcast from the London Palladium 
which was just amazing. I'm a huge theatre fan. I, you know, I love going into the West End and watching musicals and things like that. So to have that opportunity to not only be backstage at the Palladium, but to actually stand on the Palladium stage was just amazing. So yeah, it was very, um, it was very much about, well, they gave me the jive and then I thought to myself, okay, you know what, I have no choice in this. And I actually love rock and roll music. Don't get me wrong. I, I would, it was just that, sheer that fear of this is one of the fastest dances dance styles on strictly and fatigue is a really real issue for me um so but it was about adapting and you know jason gilkerson who's the head choreographer on strictly and ali ash were brilliant at adapting the routine and making sure that they got the best out of me and also, you know, it was, it was a real lesson in the fact that there's no shame in saying, actually, I need to adapt this, or can we do this slightly differently in order to be able to reach your end goal? And again, I think that's, it's, it's really important to remember for anybody who's living with a disability or, or chronic illness, that you, you can still get to where you want to get to. You may just have to take a different route to get to get there yeah I think that's a really really valuable point and everything that you have done since your diagnosis has led you here yeah and I just I am in awe of your mobility your dancing your winning and your success and your work so I'm really grateful to you for spending some time with us today thanks ever so much Trishna it's a pleasure. Um, it's always lovely to be able to chat and share experiences because hopefully, so one of the things that I often say to people is nowadays it's so easy to compare yourself, particularly when we can see people's lives on social media. And what I say to people is take inspiration from other people's experiences but don't try to emulate them because every single one of us is on our own unique journey. So it's great to take inspiration. And I hope that people who are listening and through my work, people can take inspiration from some of the things that I do and help them to maybe do something differently in their life that will help them to live more positively with a chronic illness or a disability but I wouldn't want anybody to go away and think well I have to be I have to be Trishna because that's not the way that's not the way it is it's every every single on their own journey just the same way that I I look to other people people who I meet within the community um, within the, the patient community and I take inspiration from them and I say okay you know what this person's doing this in this way that would actually be really useful for me. Let me see if I can apply it to some of the things that I need to do. Um, and I think that's, and that's a key thing to remember that we're all different. We've all got, there's no right or wrong way of dealing with a diagnosis or of living with a chronic or long-term condition. Uh, the important thing is that we try and, we try and do it as positively as we can. You're doing heaps of supporting and advocacy and I thank you for doing all of that had a lovely time chatting to you thanks thanks so much for listening to today's MS show 
please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. And if you'd like to get more involved with The MS Show, why not join our Facebook community? Just search Facebook for The MS Show. Come back soon for another dose of MS information and inspiration. You've been listening to The MS Show podcast.